that not only do I have two different stories for you today, but they are related. I mean, like, kinda sorta. Listen, today's episode is gonna be bonkers and it might be a little long, but I assure you, it is totally worth it. You see, this may be especially long because it actually contains two unrelated crimes. The only real connection is that the two victims of these violent crimes were brothers. In fact, one of the crimes was committed in Hong Kong while the other was in the United States, some three years later. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, today I want to share with you the story of Robert and Andrew Kissel. Robert was an investment banker who worked for such businesses as Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch. Andrew Kissel, however, was a real estate developer with a bit of a, uh, let's say a con side. He was quite the shady character. But before I dive in too much on them, I'd like to introduce myself. Hi, this is What the Actual Left, and I'm your host, Harmony. Every once in a while, like right now, you can also hear my French bulldog snoring. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Binks. And until further notice, he is my co-host, and usually he's sleeping on the job. But let's not focus on that, because today is gonna be a doozy. And I think we should go ahead and dive in. If you're ready, let's begin. Brass simply called it the milkshake murder. Mommy said that it has secret powers in it. Mm. Two brothers who seem to be living the American dream. Daddy must have dropped something. Until they were mysteriously murdered in their own homes. Andrew Kissel was found stabbed to death 27 times. It's a story that would be impossible to believe if it weren't true. I'm sorry, sweetie. John Stamos, The Two Mr. Kissels, a world premiere movie, Saturday at 9 on Lifetime. In my personal opinion, having a movie made about your life isn't too shabby. That is, unless it's about the end of your life and how you were brutally murdered along with your brother. Then maybe it's not exactly something you should be bragging about. But then again, you can't really brag if you're dead. There is a movie that was released by Lifetime called The Two Mr. Kissels. And I guess if you are going to be brutally murdered and a movie is going to be made about you, why not have John Stamos play you? I mean, win, lose, right? I mean, it's a total win because John Stamos is playing you in a movie. However, <laughs> that movie is about your murder, so lose. Anyways, getting distracted here, I would like to begin with the beginning, where it all really starts. The Kissel brothers grew up on a street that was basically out of a family sitcom. Andrew and Robert would ride their bikes, play touch football, and be out until dark like most kids in the 60s did. There wasn't a whole lot of stranger danger like there is today, and kids were outside from the moment the sun was up to the sun going down. Those streetlights turn on, your asses better be home. These brothers were absolutely oblivious to the horrendous fates that would once lie upon them. But they have many years until then. Most days, the brothers would play cutthroat Monopoly. Hold on, wait a second. 
when the fuck did you get those 50s? I know that you had to pay me for boardwalk and you had like $25 left. How the fuck you get those 50s, bitch? Sorry, Monopoly turns me into a bad person, but I do love it. Now, I wanted to bring this up with them because they would become somewhat of a financial moguls because of, well, how they would handle money. One, very well, and the other, <laughs> not so much. They started young learning about property and the ins and outs of cash. And as grown-ups, that would become how they were. Masters of real-life monopoly. They really became what would only be known as masters of real-life monopoly. As grown-ups and adult men, they would go around buying big properties and savoring all of the perks that came with this. They would roll the dice on big financial responsibilities, hoping that the payoff would be worth it. And in many cases, they were. Or in others, they would make it. They had smart marriages, in splendid cars, massive vacation homes all over the world, even a mansion and a yacht. Now Robert, he would play according to the rules. And then Andrew, no, 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 rules schmoles. He wanted the shortcuts. Andrew wanted to get to the end. He would justify it at any means. If he wanted it, he was damn well gonna get it. Now, Monopoly may better explain their adult careers, but when it comes to games, Clue would better fit their lives. Or at least, the ending. Rob Kissel was in the bedroom with a blunt object, and Andrew in the basement with a knife. This story is full of ambition, and it leads to Hong Kong. Also, the smartest streets of Manhattan and the backcountry of the wealthy Connecticut areas. But I'd like to begin in New Jersey, where Robert was considered the athlete of the two. He was more friendlier than Andrew, and a bit more outgoing as well. Andrew was sort of different, like altogether. Different as in his temperament. But I think we're gonna get to that, and you'll see what I mean. They both seem to love math. Side note, if you like math, what is wrong with you? My son loves that shit. I, I am so weird with numbers. I actually have a disorder where numbers get really confusing to me. I, anyways, <laughs> enough about me. Let's hear talk about murder. Now, there wasn't a lot of doubt that both Rob and Andrew would turn to careers in business. Andrew was the first one out of the box with a retail car accessory shop. This ultimately failed. However, a bit more cautious, Robert, being the younger brother, set out on a more conventional path to success. He went to college and then business school. He didn't just jump right into the deep end like his brother Andy did. In fact, Robert was so much more methodical on his planning out with everything, from his studies to his sports and even his love life. We explore the murders of Robert and Andrew Kissel. Tonight, we know Nancy and Robert Kissel because of the murder, the milkshake murder. But Nancy and Robert Kissel actually started way back in 1987 when the two met in New York City. They met, they began dating, they fell in love, and just two years later, 1989, they got married. In 1987, when Rob and Nancy Keishan were both in their 20s, they would meet during a Club Med vacation in the Caribbean. In just a few years, the two would become engaged and then married, and they would try to begin their family in the big city. Rob had a knack for tracking baseball stats, which somehow started him into Wall Street banking. 
I have no fucking idea how that correlates, but that is just what was noted in all of the research about Rob, was that like he had a knack and was very natural at baseball stats, and then he started with Wall Street banking. I don't know how they correlate, but I'm also not in Wall Street, so <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, this career for him was definitely on the right track for him to make millions. However, many people that knew Rob said even with his growing financial success, he stayed very down to earth and quite humble. But the polar opposite could be said for Mrs. Nancy. If anything, according to those around them, Nancy would misuse and uh, often flaunt her relishes of her husband's massive financial success. She wasn't afraid to show it off to any and everyone. In fact, a neighbor of Nancy and Rob's recalled a moment that I read about where she complimented Nancy who was wearing a real beaver fur coat. When she complimented Nancy and was like, oh my god, that is a great coat, Nancy spun around and was like, it is a great coat. Yeah, too bad you're never gonna be able to afford one, bitch. Okay, she didn't say bitch, but she did say the other part. Now, just because Nancy was quick to spend her husband's money didn't mean that Robert didn't go, no, hey, you're not buying that. It was apparent, according to many, that Robert did step in and try to stop his wife from spending the money that she was. In fact, it would lead to them arguing and fighting to the point that oftentimes people would come over and could sense that there was some tension in the air. One time, the same neighbor who had their run-in about the coat with Nancy had walked into her and Robert's apartment only to see that the couple had been fighting. Nancy then looked at the neighbor and said, money, immediately letting her know that they were just in a heated battle over cha-ching, cha-ching, money. Other friends of Nancy and Rob's did say that Nancy was very fun-loving and caring and she would give anything to those that cared for her and that she cared for. She would surprise them with unexpected, beautiful, lavish gifts. Although many, if not all, would admit that every now and then, suddenly, a very unpleasant streak would show itself in Nancy. This was somewhat known as Nancy's on-off switch, often considered a simple little quirk about her. That is not a fucking cork, that is actually a sign of a narcissist. I'm, I, I see two therapists, I kinda know a little bit about something. Plus I had a mama who was very narcissistic. <laughs> I can sniff those motherfuckers out from a mile away. So many people saw this as somewhat just Nancy being Nancy. And this is because, like I said, many people would say under the right circumstances, because that's how it has to be, apparently you can't just be the right kind of person all the time, Nancy would be exactly what you needed. She would give you any and everything. She was so fun-loving and so caring. And you know what? Everybody was right. Nancy would absolutely give them something. The shock of their fucking lives. Higher than the last, more money than the last, until ultimately, he was transferred to Hong Kong. He was with Goldman Sachs, and in the year 2000, he had switched over to Merrill Lynch, and he was pulling down three million dollars that we know of. There may have been other bonuses. We also know that his title was Managing Director of Global Investments. Kissel had made it to the top. The picture-perfect family, that everything was going their way. But, according to Nancy Kissel, it was far from perfect. Now, according to every piece of research, the biggest place to be for a banker in the 1990s was Hong Kong. 
Again, I don't really know anything about banking and investment banking and Wall Street and all that shit, but that was the place to be apparently if you wanted to roll in the fucking dough. Southeast Asia's currencies were in free fall and cash-strapped industries were eager to sell off assets for nickels on the dollar. Rob Kissel's bosses at Goldman Sachs, the investment banker, wanted him there to pick up all of that fallen goodness. Rob, Nancy, and their two children, a three-year-old and a baby infant, picked up all of their stuff, said goodbye to their friends and family, and headed over the big seat. These New Yorkers were about to become American expatriates and extremely wealthy ones at that. Because it was goodbye New York and hello Hong Kong. Their brand new home was a sprawling $20,000 a month apartment. Oh my god, I just threw up in my mouth. $20,000 a month? I spend $2,200 a month and I cry myself to sleep at night. Could you imagine? $20,000? Oh my god, it's probably beautiful though. I mean, it, it was from what I could see, but I didn't really get to see a whole bunch. It was a luxurious apartment in Parkview Towers though. The two of them actually fit right in. At this point, Rob was earning millions of dollars a year. However, in order to make this kind of money, he was working at the very least 16 hours a day. And a banker's wife doesn't really like that if you know what I'm saying. And much like Nancy, she didn't either. But she did fill her hours with children and charity work. They made the best of what they could with what they had. And they had a lot, so it seemed like they were living the best life. But looks can be deceiving. At least according to Nancy. You see, there was so much to explore in Hong Kong. Millions of people are in the city with money on their mind. But it is also Asia, which is such a culture shock for Westerners. Even in the 90s, when it is so much still ahead of America, Asia has always been ahead of us in, in many, many ways. So to move there and take your life up there when you have grown up in America is a bit of a shock. After their long days, the Kissels could retreat to their Parkview apartment in the tower. Another American, Joss Gistrine, had actually lived in Parkview as well for years. However, she never met the Kissels, but she does understand the initial giddiness that they would have felt when they moved to this brand new world for them. There was world-class shopping available there and endless abilities to be pampered, something that Nancy really loved. However, this neighbor also knew the dark side of the area. How not all grand adventures are beautiful, but can be murky. However, all those who knew Nancy said that she really seemed to make the best of it. A close friend by the name of Hillary Richard actually vacationed with Nancy and Rob during these years. If this move halfway across the world had put stress on the marriage, Hillary says that Nancy didn't show any signs of it. In fact, it was quite the opposite. She would apparently speak at great lengths about how wonderful and passionate her relationship with Rob had remained. She even talked about their life in bed sometimes. Which, okay, I mean, I've talked about my sex life with friends, not, not as much now that I'm getting older. Like, okay, cool, I have sex. I don't really want to tell you all the ins and outs because I have a very vivid imagination and sometimes my friends, if they share with me their sexual capades, I can imagine their partner and then I get very uncomfortable because the last thing I want to see is my friend's hubby butt naked in my mind. However, Nancy was comfortable and shared this with whoever would listen from time to time. Nonetheless, according to Nancy, I guess we could take from her is that everything was perfect. At least, that's the way that she portrayed it.
Their daughter moved to Hong Kong, everything went south. Everything went bad. She says that he, Andrew, Robert Kissel, immediately became addicted to cocaine, that his second drug of choice was single malt scotch, that he would beat her mercilessly if she refused to have sex with him, that he became extremely controlling, that he had never been that way back in the U.S., especially financially. He took back four of their five credit cards and their relationship began to deteriorate rapidly. Every now and then, this little charade that Nancy would put on would slip a little bit. Another neighbor once saw the Kissels on home leave visit in 2000. It'd be a little bit more than two years after they had moved to Hong Kong at this time when this neighbor was visiting Hong Kong from their home in the U.S. and happened to bump into the Kissels and just kind of noticed that something seemed to have changed between them. She witnessed a lot of exhaustion and fatigue between the couple. That two to three year Hong Kong stint was turning into a multi-year mass amounts of meetings, deals, and traveling. Again, to make millions, you have to be readily available and ready to do any and everything that calls for it. This isn't a $16 an hour job, this is a multi-million dollar career. Along the way, in 2000, Merrill Lynch wooed Rob away from Goldman Sachs. This made Rob the top man in Southeast Asia. Rob, the golden son, was doing the Kissel family proud. And he wasn't the only one. His brother, Andrew, was on a roll with his investment firm, buying and managing commercial properties all around New York City. Andrew, at this time, was also married to his wife, Haley. Haley was a former ski champion and stock analyst. In fact, a fellow apartment older who knew Haley actually got into touch with Mr. Kissel because he was so, I guess you could say, impressed by him, believing that everything he touched as an investment for properties would turn to treasure. Because he saw him as someone with the golden touch, he tapped into this opportunity with Mr. Andrew and invested in him. No questions asked. This man, by the way, Peter Chamberlain, could eyeball some of the books that Andrew kept, and with a little bit of math could realize that the numbers Andrew had kept were not really adding up. He said he actually confronted other board members and Andrew Kissel, however, he lost. Eventually though, this board would actually come to realize that somebody was stealing throughout all of this property ownership. They caught on and demanded answers from the treasurer. And do you know who that treasurer was? Andrew Kissel. And he was a master of the con. Now, you might think that he was being caught stealing, which should land him in a fucking jail. But that is not what happened. Somehow, some way, he came up with the cash and paid back all of the missing millions. In return, because he did this, he was allowed to leave, unpunished and still with his dignity. And where did he move to? Greenwich Village in Connecticut. This was home to big money. And if you can't remember, I also told a story about Martha Moxley, who lived in this same area. One of the wealthiest places in America. In 2003, Andrew Kissel was dreaming up more schemes and plans on playing more, I guess you could say, 
dirty monopoly like he did as a kid. Ways he could steal and con people out of their own money and property. He wasn't the only Kissel though that was in current crisis mode. Halfway across the globe, in Hong Kong, his other brother was worrying about a massive pandemic and his family's safety. Sadly though, Rob was worried about the wrong killer because there was something else coming for him. They were brothers living worlds apart. Robert Kissel in Hong Kong, Andrew Kissel in Greenwich, Connecticut. Both married with children, both with more money than they could spend in a lifetime. But soon, this family fairy tale would begin to tragically unravel. It's just such a cruel fate, and I wouldn't wish this on a dog. Andrew Kissel, once a successful real estate developer, drove flashy cars and lived in this gated estate. But the high life hit a low point. His lawyer says he fell into drugs, and last year, he was charged with more than $25 million in fraud, including millions stolen from the owners of this New York apartment building where he served on the board. In the spring of 2003, Andrew was lucky to only be, I guess you could say, kicked out by his apartment neighbors that he had fucked over. He still continued to buy up commercial and residential properties all over wealthy Connecticut. This would be about the time that extremely worrying news would start to come out of Asia. We saw the galloping rise of SAR, severe acute respiratory syndrome. And as new cases emerge, quarantines expand, and the disease spreads to North America, the consequences are multiplying. The airborne killer known as SARS had put that region on high alert. This was including Hong Kong, where Rob and Nancy and their kids were living. There was no question that Rob had to get Nancy and their now three kids out of Asia. Their safe haven was the Kissel family ski house in Stratton, Vermont. Now Rob had his family head there while he elected to stay in Hong Kong. According to a New York City police detective turned private investigator by the name of Frank Shea, during this separation from his family, Rob started to get a really funny feeling. The kind that you get when you start to think that somebody close to you may be betraying you. Because he probably started to think that his wife was doing something she shouldn't be. This is when he decided to hire Frank Shea's investigators in order to survey his wife at that Vermont ski home. And Frank had some news for Rob. Quote, a gentleman arrived in a van and parked on a dirt road and then snuck into the house. This gentleman was Michael Dale Prier. He was a local and he installed TV and stereos. According to Frank, when Rob heard about this man sneaking in to see his wife, he took the news rather stoically. Of course, as soon as he heard this and he hung up with Frank, Rob called Nancy. And this led to a bit of a stir up right there in that Vermont home. So Frank was actually sitting outside of the house when he called. According to him, when he hung up with Rob, shortly thereafter, a male that he had saw came in, walked out of the house. He got into his van and drove off. This is when Rob called Frank back and said that he had just spoken to Nancy. He didn't let her know that the house was being watched. He just said, quote, Nancy, don't do anything stupid. We have the children. We promise each other we get this back together. It seemed that this struck a chord in Nancy. Nancy then quickly returned to her husband in Hong Kong, presumably, possibly just to work on their marriage. 
She probably realized she stepped into the shit and she didn't want to lose him. Then, just a month later, Frank would actually receive an email from Rob. Rob said that he was going to be in New York for back surgery and that Nancy was with him. In fact, he actually had another job for Frank if he was willing to take it. He wanted him to check out on what his wife was doing while they were in New York together and he was in surgery. And guess who she was hanging out with? That's right, the very same gentleman that they thought had left. Michael. This brings us to late August of 2003 when the couple were back in Hong Kong. At some point or the other, Rob opened up about his marriage troubles to his brother in an email. Even though he shared with his brother what was going on, no one on the outside of the marriage or I guess close real friends could really sense anything happening. And nobody could see how dangerous it was going to become for Rob. No one that is except for Nancy. Three years ago, Robert Kissel, the successful banker in Hong Kong, discovered his wife having an affair with a TV repairman. This private investigator says Robert Kissel told him he thought she was trying to kill him. Rob Kissel was worth about $15 million dead. Robert Kissel had offered to divorce his wife Nancy and divide their millions, but apparently she wanted more. There was something that Rob and Nancy did. Nancy would actually make Rob a two-finger scotch whenever she'd come home, or whenever he would, just like in the evening to relax. She would always bring him some scotch. However, rather recently, Rob started to tell Frank that the scotch was making him feel kind of funny. And not like how he normally felt, you know, like a buzz, like something felt off. It made him begin to feel woozy and disoriented and something that he just wasn't used to, it didn't feel like it should. This caused Frank, who yeah, was a PI, but used to be a cop, it had his instincts kick in and go into high alert. He told Rob that he needed to take a sample of that scotch to a lab to get some tests done. Frank knew that this probably wasn't going to happen. Rob was probably not going to have it tested. So he decided to fly to Hong Kong and meet with Rob face to face and talk to him. Quote, I sat down with Rob Kissel and looked at him right across the table at the China Club and I said, quote, Rob, I think Nancy's trying to kill you. Frank said he could tell that Rob somewhat believed him. In fact, Rob would go on to tell Frank he does somewhat believe that his safety was in jeopardy because he thought that there was a chance Nancy may be trying to do something. Although with this realization coming to Rob, there wasn't any urgency in him. If anything, it was more as though Rob was defeated. Before he knew it, it was Halloween weekend and the end of the month and the beginning of another. November was here. Rob actually never did end up sending out that sample for testing, but he had made another decision. He decided to confront his wife and let her know the marriage had been broken and he wanted a divorce. In fact, friends of the couple say that they were supposed to talk about the split on a Sunday in the beginning of November. Let's talk about this day. We know that Rob was supposed to spend the day with his kids that he was absolutely crazy about, which he did. At one point, his daughter gave him a pink milkshake, which was mixed all together by their mother. You know, Nancy. She called it a secret recipe just for daddy. 
And it was in the spirit of Halloween, even though it had passed, you know, maybe they had some leftover things that she just whipped together in this fancy little secret recipe, pink milkshake. At the time, to their daughter, this seemed like nothing but a cute gesture. And to Rob, maybe even something sweet. So of course, he accepted the drink. He had so much on his mind that afternoon, the impending divorce, the conversation with his wife, the possible loss of his kids. And on top of all of that, he was still working his multi-million dollar job. That evening, he actually had a critical conference call that he had to be ready for. It was so important that a colleague actually phoned him to talk about a strategy for the meeting. According to this colleague, they said that Rob sounded really weird. They thought that maybe stress was finally taking its toll on Rob. Or maybe something else completely. Who really knew? Well, again, <laughs> Nancy knew. Then suddenly, days before meeting with prosecutors, he's found dead in the basement of his home. Many stab wounds in his chest, his hands and feet bound. But was it what it looked like? One theory police have, he ordered the hit on himself. Did he plan his own murder in some type of murder-for-hire plot so his children could get millions in insurance money? The attorney for Andrew Kissel's driver discounts that theory. I don't think he's the type of person uh, who has a degree of selflessness to, uh, to have himself killed for the benefit of somebody else. So I just think that theory is a little bit silly. Instead, she served him a strawberry milkshake laced with drugs. And when he passed out, she bludgeoned him to death with a statue. He stayed in the bedroom for two days and then Nancy Kissel rolled his body up in, the, in a carpet that was in the living room and had the maintenance people from the uh, building complex take his body to a storeroom in the complex. With all the stress that he was facing with a Bank of China deal approaching, something that he should be celebrating, by the way, something so impressive, yet his life was at a downward slope and probably in the worst of times for him. And it was all about to hit a plateau with his murder. Beneath that crisp business suit and tie, he was facing a personal crisis. His marriage with Nancy was collapsing and he had reason to suspect that she was drugging him now, just as Frank had warned him. On that first Sunday in November, a friend called to discuss the Bank of China deal that was happening later that night. This is when it's noted, in this point of time in the day, Rob is sounding a bit funny. However, the friend didn't think much of this and just obviously thought he was under a lot of stress, a lot of duress, until he missed the conference call that night. A no call, no show, nothing. And then didn't show up for work the next day. This is sending alarm bells everywhere. The friend who had this call with him and actually was on the conference call reached out to Nancy and was like, hey, where the fuck is Robert? She told him that Rob was dealing with some family issues and just needed to be a little bit out of the action, you know, just needed some time to decompress. And this was believed for a bit because we get it. As adults, we understand sometimes you gotta be like, hey, give me a fucking moment before I lose my shit, okay? I just need like 48 fucking hours. Thank you. But as the days began to pass, the friend who was uh, worried about Rob started to get even more suspicious. They started to think that something more sinister was going on. And this led them to filing a missing persons report. Police inspectors then went to the Kissel residence and knocked on the door. 
Of course, Nancy answers and lets them in, explaining that her husband had walked out on her after they had a fight. So they were free to look around and see if they could find him, but he definitely wasn't there. Meanwhile, another team of inspectors were investigating reports of a strange smell coming from the Kissel's family storage unit. Eventually, the police asked Nancy for the keys and to go down and open it because they wanted to see what was happening. Why was it smelling so kind of funky? Nancy had some hesitation, but she headed them over to the unit. As soon as the storage door was open, the smell was overwhelming. Immediately, investigators could identify what it was. Decomp. They found the missing man. 40-year-old Robert Kissel had been rolled up inside of a carpet. His body was padded with pillows and towels, all to try to contain the smell. Within a matter of hours of this discovery, Nancy was placed under arrest. Nancy Kissel will spend the rest of her life in a Hong Kong prison for what became known as the Milkshake Murder. Headlines from Hong Kong began to fly all over the world. Nancy Kissel, fashionable wife, murders millionaire banker husband. In the backseat of their chauffeured limos and over cappuccinos and lattes and caviar dreams. Sorry. I got carried away with memories of the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. <clears throat> Sir. All of the ex-Americans in the Hong Kong wealthy community were speaking about this. A body stuffed inside of a carpet? Whispers about a husband being drugged by a milkshake given to him by his daughter. So many rumors and so much gossip and so much speculation. All about the final days of Robert's life with Nancy. There were stories about husbands and wives fighting amongst themselves behind closed doors. We know in relationships and marriages, everything isn't always peachy fucking keen. You're gonna have a disagreement here or there. But more often than not, these disagreements don't lead to murder. I mean, okay, yeah, they, they do actually, because I have a job because of it, so okay, scratch what I just said. Nonetheless, it still shocks us when it happens. Almost overnight, Rob and Nancy's three children, nine, six, and four, had become virtual infants. Their father was stuffed in a carpet in a storage unit in a basement. And their mother, well, she was gonna be behind bars for the foreseeable future. Quickly, the children were returned to America, where they eventually wound up in the care of their aunt, Haley, and their fabulously wealthy uncle, Andrew Kissel. You guys remember Robert's brother? At this point, he was living a rather cozy and wealthy life in Greenwich, Connecticut, taking up residence in a beautiful mansion. So beautiful and glorious, in fact, that it could hide the absolute horrible events happening inside. Michael Calasano, the court's court-appointed legal guardian, interviewed Andrew on the phone. This is actually a routine whenever a child is moved in custody, especially with courts and death. However, according to Michael, this phone call went rather poorly. Quote, he wanted to tell me how rich he was. And I wasn't really looking to get that from this conversation. I didn't need to know how rich he was. I was looking to get from this conversation what he was going to do, how he was going to be good at being in custody. I wasn't counting cars. I didn't need to know all about his riches. In hindsight, calling Andrew a jerk is a little strong, but... 
I did hang up the phone with a bit of unease. However, the focus of Andrew wasn't all about his bragging, or even trying to realize that he had some self-identity issues. Maybe some minor insecurities there. Not with a murder trial about to begin in Hong Kong over the death of Rob. There was a mass amount of outpouring of sympathy for the Kissel family, a family that had so brutally lost a son, a brother, an uncle. And a husband, even though Nancy murdered him. But what about Nancy? One of the few friends who'd heard her voice was Elizabeth Lacouse. Nancy actually called this friend from her lawyer's office in Hong Kong. According to her, Nancy was shaken. She said, oh my gosh, you don't know. You don't know what I've been through. But Nancy wasn't just gonna tell Elizabeth her story. She was gonna tell everyone. And she was gonna do so from the witness stand. A shocking story would erupt the headlines of Hong Kong, more so than what already had. Back in Connecticut, solving Big Brother Andrew Kissel's murder may not be that simple. But the evidence does raise a lot of questions. There is a bitter wife and a raging email that appears to show this Mrs. Kissel also had thoughts about killing her husband. Nancy Kissel was charged with the bludgeoning murder of her banker husband, Robert Kissel. Hong Kong could not get enough of this story all summer long. Among the headlines of how hot and humid and all the storms to come was everything about Nancy and the murder of Robert. For three months, it was absolutely intense in the headlines. The headlines started from day one with the defendant's dramatic new look. The PI that Rob had hired, Frank, also attended this trial. He says the transformation of stylish Nancy Kissel was absolutely astonishing. Quote, I couldn't believe it was the same person. She had changed dramatically. She looked oriental. I would say she changed to appeal to the jury, to put on a more local nature on her defense, i.e. so she didn't look American. This way, she could appeal to those who had her fate in their hands. Also in the gallery of this trial watching was Robert's father, William, and his sister, Jane Kissel. Thankfully, however, Robert and Nancy's children were thousands of miles away. They were in Connecticut with Uncle Andrew, shielded from the trauma of their mother's heinous crime. The prosecution outlining the case against Nancy saw her as a calculating wife in love with another man, hungry for her husband's money, and he had millions of dollars. She was unwilling to put up with any messy divorce. The possibility of having to split custody or even having to <gasps> make her own money? Don't think so. Before she killed him though, according to prosecutors, Nancy had trolled the internet to research for drugs in order to poison her husband with them. Guys, this is Killing 101. You never search the internet. Duh. Prosecutors saw Nancy as nothing but a cold-blooded, calculated murderer. Prosecutors also laid out what they believed Rob Kissel's last hours of life looked like, and they were rather grisly. They said that Nancy knew full well her husband was about to ask for a divorce. So, instead of just granting this, she launched her very own plan. She blended together a pharmacy of drugs, including a substance known as Rufinol or the date rape drug. She mixed this into a pink-colored milkshake and gave it to one of her daughters to give to their father. 
Because what loving dad is gonna say no to their child? I made you a milkshake, daddy. Aw, thanks, love. Or something like that. Now, after drinking this pink shake, Rob reportedly played with his son for a little while, which would actually end up being the final time he ever would. He then spoke on the phone with that colleague I mentioned earlier, so they could discuss that ever-so-important deal that they had the conference call later. Prosecutors also said that at some point, as the drugs were kicking in, Rob decided to get into his pajamas and then staggered toward his bed, and this is when he collapsed. He then fell unconscious right there on the bedroom floor. Nancy then moseyed her way into the room and to her unconscious husband. She found a very heavy ornament. It was also a family heirloom. She then bludgeoned her husband five times with it. Each blow was enough to kill him. Each hit had so much force to his skull that the bones beneath the skin broke causing them to pierce his brain. Nancy seemed to be a little bit pissed off. What happened after this, prosecutors said, was absolutely hasty and completely botched. This was her cover-up. She had people come help get her husband out of the house and into her storage unit without them being any the wiser. She covered it all up by reaching out to a local upscale furnishing home store. When she reached out to them, she ordered brand new linens and carpets for her room. You know, the one she had just brutally ended her husband's life in. This meant that she had to have everything else removed, allowing it to not seem too suspicious that they were removing a rather heavy rug. However, as bizarre as the state's presentation was, it would absolutely pale in comparison against what was to come, the defense. Investigators discovered that Nancy kept Robert's body in her bedroom for two days. She went to bed with him lying there. Hong Kong journalist Albert Wong. They say she herself rolled him up without any help and called the delivery men to store it in the storeroom. And she went on a shopping spree. The day after Robert was killed, security cameras caught Nancy returning home after spending thousands of dollars on new furniture and new rugs. Nobody believed it because everybody knew Nancy. The whole community was behind her. At the time of her arrest, Nancy was so distraught that instead of prison, she was held in the maximum security ward of this hospital, where Trudy was allowed to see her. She was shaking, she was crying. Trudy says Nancy was bruised and unable to walk. Like, almost like she was grabbed, you know, very forcibly by someone. I thought, my God, she's been in a terrible fight. It was now Nancy's turn to tell her story in her very own words. As Nancy took the stand to tell her story, she did so with the whisper of a voice. As she sat there and turned the tables and put her dead husband on trial. For everyone in the room, it was extremely emotional. It was Nancy's chance to actually tell what happened and how she felt about it. And tell she did. Describing in detailed scenes of an abusive, perverted marriage. How at night her husband did some sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. Peeling off this conservative skin that he wore, this elite businessman making millions, working 16 hours a day and seeming as though to be the perfect person. 
At night, this would all come off and he would start doing drugs, snorting cocaine and drinking scotch. All until he was so drunk that he would routinely force his wife, Nancy, to humiliate herself and have rough sex with him. Something Nancy said she did not enjoy, she did not want to do, and something that she looked at as abuse. Now this is all alleged, by the way. I have no idea if this is or isn't what happened in between them, but what I can say is the stories that Nancy did share about her relationship with her husband were never this kind with her friends. And remember, Nancy would share very personal things at times to whoever would listen, including stuff about their sex life. I feel like this should have come up a few times if, if she really experienced this, but again, I'm not saying she's lying. I'm just also not saying she may not be telling the truth. Now, one of her friends did come to her aid and say that Nancy was seeking out help. In fact, the lover she took up in Vermont, Mr. Michael, he was her temporary solace. Okay, listen, I get it. Friends till the end, right? However, <laughs> I'm just saying cheating is not how you find solace. You don't feel comfort because you decided to cheat on somebody. You just end the relationship and then you build your own comfort and happiness. You don't go to somebody else while you're currently with them. I don't know. Maybe I'm just wrong, but I get it. You know, they're friends to the end. She's going to take Nancy's side. Now on the stand, Nancy did acknowledge that at least at one occasion, she had actually sedated Rob just to calm him down. Although she admitted to drugging him from time to time just so he would just you know, not be so irate, not get so, so uh, handsy, you know, that way she could go to sleep in peace. She said that she did not lace his milkshake that day, especially not with the five different types of sedatives that were found in his body. Jesus fucking Christ, you couldn't stop at one? You had to, you had to add four others? I mean, I guess some people really can't hold arsenic, so you gotta chase it with some cyanide. Nonetheless, for all of her testimony, Nancy's memory of her husband's murder was a bit spotty. She could go into detail and tell you of the abuse that she, quote, endured. But when it came to the fact that she murdered her husband, she was rather iffy on the actual events of that day. She remembered acting in self-defense. She says that Rob had been threatening her. So she hit him five different times, I guess. I, I, she's not actually sure. She said it's a whole blur. She's not positive what happened, but just that she had to defend herself. Apparently, she says that he was trying to pick a fight by mentioning that he wanted a divorce, which I do believe actually probably was said. I think that she just got pissed. Nonetheless, he says, I'm taking the kids, I'm leaving. And it's stated that at this time, while he's saying this, he's holding a baseball bat in some sort of threatening manner, with a lot of shouting continuing and emotions starting to get riled up. She says that Rob grabs her and drags her into the bedroom. This is when a violent fight apparently just breaks out. And it's right in this moment that she goes blank. Huh, that's convenient. So on cross-examination, the prosecutors cut right to the chase. Quote, Mrs. Kissel, there's just one thing we have to get over and done with. You do, of course, accept that you killed your husband, correct? Yes. Immediately, gasps fill the courtroom. In the end, after a three-month trial, the jury of five men and two women, they didn't buy her routine of being some battered wife. 
A woman who had just met her breaking point after years of sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional torment at the hands of her husband. They weren't buying that at all. In fact, it was a unanimous verdict of guilty. Nancy Kissel would spend the rest of her life in a Chinese prison. And it seems as though nobody really spared her much sympathy. Last night in bed, I could actually see myself pummeling him to death and just enjoying the sensation of each and every shot. But her attorney says that doesn't mean what it says. It's a clear venting of frustration and anger at what he had done. So it, you know, it's understandable that she would do it. And she did it in a you know, private email to Andrew's sister. I mean, nobody's going to send emails to the sister if they had any serious thoughts of doing something that would be the dumbest thing you could do. Everybody was hoping that the Kissel children could begin to heal and begin their new life under the care of their uncle Andrew. But by this time, he may have been too preoccupied with his own things. There was yet another traumatic event heading toward the Kissel family. Side note, some people have actually stated that this family has got to be cursed. And who knows, you may believe the same thing by the end of this. According to many, it seems as though Shakespearean itself, or even almost biblically written, what was about to happen to the surviving brother was heinous. Surviving, I say, but not for much longer. Many people around Andrew at this point in time started to realize that he was losing his festive self. Even while on a booze cruise, it seems as though he wasn't in a chipper cherry mood. Many people even stated that they saw him crying and could see that he was deeply troubled and saddened on this booze cruise. Now everyone was assuming that his grief was over his family's great tragedy, the loss of Robert. Not even just the loss, but the murder by his wife Nancy and his children being left behind. However, maybe, just maybe, the tears were for himself. It seems that Andrew's crooked Monopoly game of life was catching up with him because he was about to go straight to jail. That's right, do not pass go, go to jail. As his family was sitting through a very traumatic murder trial in Hong Kong, Andrew was now making headlines back home in Greenwich, Connecticut. What were these headlines about? Well, if you thought swindling his apartment neighbors in Manhattan was just a little bit of something. You are absolutely correct because that was just a taste of what he had been up to. In the summer of 2005, he would be arrested and charged with defrauding banks in a massive, massive loan scheme. Just how much money? Like roughly $20 million. That's a lot of fucking money. According to Andrew's own attorney, Philip Russell, the alleged scheme went like this. Andrew would take out a mortgage for a piece of property. He would then forge another document to make it look like he had paid off the debt, meaning he owned that property free and clear. He would then go to a different bank and mortgage the same property again, so that there would be more than one loan on the same piece of property. This is bank fraud. If he was convicted on all charges, Andrew could have spent the rest of his life in a federal slammer, you know, spend the rest of forever in prison. Not exactly a bright, bustling future. 
especially not for a guardian that just inherited his late brother's three children, and the heirs to an estimated $18 million. The court-appointed attorney, Michael Calisano, for Rob's children, he actually believes and would later realize that Andrew had conned him into believing that he had the best interest for his nephews and nieces at heart. Sorry, I said nephews. There was only one son. My apologies. He believes that he was trying to get the kids for the money. He stated that he had independently raised $100,000 in a separate trust for their well-being. Was this true? No. But if he had guardianship of the kids, guess what else he could access? I don't know, about $18 million? Now there was another worry for the kids as well. Behind the walls of the Kissel mansion, a war had begun. Andrew and his wife Haley were splitting up in a very, very ugly way. Emails obtained by Dateline showed that Haley was venting about her issues with her husband to Andrew's sister. Quote, Ugh, I just hate him. He will never be a good, responsible person. You know, last night in bed, I could actually see myself pummeling him to death and just enjoying the sensation of each and every shot. Now, this is just one of the emails and just a little taste. However, there was a pattern of behavior that was clearly indicating that there was a very stressful home environment. And it was clear to assume that Haley wasn't very happy with, well, Andrew. Now, Andrew's sister agreed. She petitioned for and was even granted custody of their three kids. She went so far as to make sure that Andrew and Haley's feud a matter of public record because she just wanted it to be known that there was some stuff going on. This absolutely infuriated Andrew, and he was going to let it be known. The banks want to lend the money. They, they want these deals to go through. They do, and when they think they have a viable, successful builder-borrower, they will fall over themselves to lend money. This plan had to crash and burn at some point. Facing federal fraud charges, Andrew sought advice from attorney Phil Russell. He described to me what had gone on, and I told him, yeah, you're in trouble. Now, Andrew was so livid with his sister. She put their feud on public record, and in retaliation, Andrew had a message for his sister, and he left it on her answering machine. Andrew's message went like this. Jane, it's your ex-brother. You're famous. You're on the front page of the New York Times. You should get it. You're quoted. And we are going to bury you, Jane. However, he didn't really have any room to throw shade on a single person. In fact, because of the trouble that Andrew was in, he found himself eventually cutting a deal with federal prosecutors that would include prison time. However, in the meantime, he was under house arrest. He had a plan, serve out his house arrest and do his time. However, fate was going to change that plan. In April of 2006, just days before he was due in federal court to confess to his crimes, Karma came knocking. Andrew was alone in the Greenwich mansion. His wife Haley and their two kids had moved out that Friday. The whole family was actually forced to move out because Andrew stopped paying rent. They were in the process of also being sued by their landlord because of this. Movers were coming to arrive that Monday to clear out the rest of the furniture and things that were left there so the family could leave. When the movers arrived early April 3rd, they arrived to a grisly discovery. 
According to police, whoever had murdered Andrew pulled his shirt over his head, stabbed him multiple times, and bound his hands and feet. It was absolutely apparent. Andrew Kissel was the second brother in the Kissel family to be brutally executed. He was a victim of foul play and brutally murdered at just 46 years old. Initially, police and investigators were not sure who could have done it. There were a few unofficials being thrown around, like possibly the thought that Andrew had actually put a hit on himself. But Andrew was broke. How could he have done such a thing? He did, however, have a very hefty life insurance policy. Some believe it was possible that he may have possibly put a hit on himself because murder would be covered by the policy but not suicide. Was this some sort of final con in hopes that his children would be taken care of? Or was it something else? Or should I say somebody else? Look at this case, Nancy, the Kissel of Death. Where did it come from? Anywhere. The mob. That's bad. I know, but I had to say it. But the mob, the hookers, the dopers, the, 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 everyone he swindled, his neighbors, his friends, his business associates, strangers in business. You know, everybody. Who did not want to raise, or who did not want to kill him? Raise your hand. Oh, everyone wanted to kill him that he knew. You know, it, everyone's a suspect. Nobody's a suspect. Nancy, everyone's a suspect, and everyone's a suspect that knows this guy. Investigators would say that although there seemed to be a lot of people who made the initial suspect list, it was Andrew's chauffeur, Carlos Trujillo, who was considered the best suspect early on. They would claim that this from the fact that Carlos seemingly told a few different stories to different people which pertain to what he did on the evening prior to Andrew being found dead. He first admitted to actually being at the home. They also did look at, of course, Andrew's wife Haley as a suspect because, well, that's usually the obvious. However, besides the email and a few choice things, there wasn't a lot tying her to murder. She had told investigators that Andrew feared jail and suggested that he may have had someone kill him in order to avoid this. While they did consider that to be an option, it didn't really seem plausible. Andrew had been repeatedly stabbed and presumably died a very slow death. I do want to say that it's actually not unheard of that people want to commit suicide. However, they want it to look like an accident or even a murder. This is often done so that their family can receive some form of insurance payout. Most insurances will not release funds and payouts if a death has occurred by suicide. So people do often put a hit out on themselves so that their family can be taken care of. But it is not very often that the victim asks to suffer. Usually the goal is just to be ended, die, finished, finito, cease to breathe, not to die slowly and in agony, which is exactly how Andrew did. He was looking at eight to 10 years in jail, in federal jail. One of the few people left in Andrew's life was Carlos Trujillo, his driver and personal assistant. Everybody left him, nobody wanted to talk to him anymore. Nobody want to be a friend anymore. And Carlos says he was worried. He told me a lot of people hate me. It would take almost two years, but eventually investigators would arrest a man by the name of Carlos Trujillo. This would actually end up being Andrew's chauffeur. 
He, along with his cousins Leonard and Jar Trujillo, were actually charged with the murder and conspiracy to commit murder of Andrew. It is believed that they were involved in this because they were involved as well with the money laundering scheme that Andrew had been running. They were afraid that because of Andrew being in current legal issues, that they would be implicated as well, meaning they had to get rid of Andrew. Leonard would actually plead guilty to manslaughter and conspiracy to commit murder, but he would never truly admit any involvement. He states when he testified against Carlos on his trial that Carlos had actually hired him to kill Andrew in exchange for about $11,000 and a computer, which if I may add is a really shitty deal. However, Leonard says that once he got the money, he backed out of the deal. This is actually suspected to not be very true, considering that Leonard signed a guilty plea in exchange for a 20-year sentence, instead of citing a Alfred plea, which usually, yes, you have some form of sentencing, but you're not stating your guilt, you're simply stating the evidence is there against you, but you yourself are not admitting to any guilt. That is the most common way people take, especially if they're not guilty. At any rate, Leonard is sitting in a Connecticut prison, and he has a release date of July 2027. As far as Jar goes, I couldn't find much information pertaining to him and his arrest and what was followed through. It seems as though most likely the charges against him were dropped. I can't be positive, but that's most likely the way it went. Carlos, however, would go on trial. He would be charged with murder and attempted murder. The jury would acquit him on the murder charges, seemingly not believing the theory of the whole money laundering scheme. They didn't really buy the fact that Carlos and his cousins were involved, and that's why they killed him. However, they did hold on to the attempted murder charge. Instead of going back to trial, Carlos also struck a deal. He decided to plead guilty to attempted murder and received a sentence of six years. Three of those years he had already served. Carlos is not in a current prison system, which isn't really as unusual because he most likely already served his six years. Or maybe he didn't, I'm not positive. Nonetheless, he would have been released by now. Whether he served any time or not, I'm not 1000% positive. But that, my loves, is the strange and unusual, disturbing, multi-case of the Kissel brothers. Ready to sing goodbye? I am. Okay. Cool. Oh, <laughs> so long, farewell to you, my friends. Goodbye for now until we meet again. I say so, so long, farewell to you, my friends. Goodbye for now. Until we meet again. Alright, that was the story of the Kissels. A grim murder tale for two. Andrew and Robert met a horrible end to their lives. Lives that they started together playing Monopoly and enjoying all things that could be. Things that they created. A business that created a career making them millions. One, Robert following to a T, living respectfully and properly, only to be poisoned by his loving wife, and then beaten by her as well. 
followed just shortly after a few years later by his older brother Andrew, being charged with fraud and then found brutally murdered in the basement of his mansion, with his hands and feet tied and his shirt pulled over his head being stabbed several times in the abdomen. There is no denying the Kissels met a grim end, and that is why many today believe the family cursed. I hope you guys, as weird and horribly odd as it is for me to say, enjoyed this macabre and grim episode. Your take is on the Kissels, and as always, you can send me an email about this case or any other. Maybe you even have one you'd like me to look into. Please, by all means, send me an email at whatstheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. I would love to know what you think about the Kissels and all other cases I've spoken of, or as always, if you want me to look into something. Nonetheless, I always welcome my listeners to send me a message. I may not always be able to respond, but I do read them. Well, we have come to the end. It's time for me to say goodbye, and I will talk to you on the next episode of What the Actual F. As always, guys, Please stay safe. As someone who looks into murder every single day of her existence, this is a reminder. You may come here for me to tell stories about others being brutally murdered, ghosts plaguing and haunting those that live among us, people disappearing off the face of the planet, jealous lovers scorned, love triangles that end in a brutal slaying. All of these happen to everyday people. Everyday people like you and me. So please, stay safe, my loves because I never want to tell a story about you. Love you. Bye.